Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we hear the stories and lessons learned of top industry leaders in the data science space. With them, we discuss leadership, strategy, team building, stakeholder management, and much, much more. My name is Felipe Flores, and I am your host. Today, we have a treat for anyone who is interested in data visualization, in creating data products. And if you ever wondered what it takes to win global hackathons, you'll get your answer in this episode. We are speaking with Nick Bluden. He is the head of data product development at Lloyd's of London. Nick is an extremely accomplished guy with a strong background in business intelligence, data visualization, and creating data products. It's a great episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe, and today I'm speaking with Nick. Mate, how are you doing today? Thanks so much for making the time to speak with us. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thanks, Felipe. Um, yeah, pleased to be talking to you today. Awesome. So at the beginning of the interview, I always like to ask, how did you get started in the data space? What was it that pulled you in? My entry was kind of interesting. The initial draw for me was actually strategy. So I was at university and I was studying business, but in a range of facets. So from economics to law to marketing to accounting to all sorts of things. And after an internship, trying auditing because I heard that PwC and Deloitte and all these guys were really good, strong careers and getting accounting qualification. I realized auditing wasn't for me. I was a bit more creative than that and kind of wanted to push the boundaries rather than learn and run by them. So I started to look into Accenture and placement there, the Navigator Scheme, which is a summer placement. And uh, I was really keen to actually get into the strategy team because I felt um, from my business studies, the bit that interested me the most was really strategy, kind of international strategy and globalization, how we can use the internet, digital technology to change your business model. But it turned out that was a very competitive space to get into. There was only really a handful of people hired every year, mostly from Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Stanford and places like this. So that wasn't quite my profile, but while I was on the internship, I was exposed to an area called business intelligence. I was working for an insurance client to basically build a data warehouse to try and help them see all of their data in a single view of policyholder and premiums and claims. And this was really the first time they were able to do that. And it unlocks for them the opportunity to ask way bolder, way bigger questions and do it in almost real time. So that kind of really piqued an interest with me. And it, it wasn't effectively the kind of fluffy side of strategy of, oh, what should we do? Let's get a whiteboard and let's dream up what the answer possible is. It was actually looking at reality and real signals and triggers in the business and in the world. And that, for me, kind of played to two sides of my personality, the kind of creative strategic side, but also the desire to, to, to build real things and actually deliver Value. So that's where I then became interested in business intelligence and then uh, applied to do that role once I graduated. That's fantastic, man. It must be a really interesting perspective to keep through your career in terms of um, the strategy lens on business intelligence. That's really good, actually. And tell me, what has your career looked like uh, since then until now? Well, I had around five years at Accenture in the business intelligence team, working on a range of projects across different clients geographies that was really good for me to effectively learn detail and be credible in the area so i had a range of roles from doing data models to building and tuning databases to 
writing and testing ETL and data load script, working on Cognos, business objects, and a whole range of data visualization tools, and in a whole range of industries. So I worked in insurance, I worked in retail banking, government, military, retail, so a whole, whole range of scenarios, but, but was able to take the lessons and the technical lessons of the business intelligence and data management side between them. So it's quite nice to see how different industries tackle their unique problems and also how you can then leverage that knowledge across either different industries or different clients to help others. So that was really good. It was fantastic for training and grasping people. And then after around five years, I went to KPMG as they were starting to build their business intelligence capability quite aggressively at that point from sort of quite an early early position. So had a number of years really kind of accelerating that and the team grew from around a dozen people when I was there to, to over over 150 just in the UK a few years later. So it was really rapid growth, really exciting. We developed a graduate training scheme and lots of methodology that we used to scale and, and quality control our team. We got some really exciting projects and, and again worked across a range of industries. So really enjoyed my time there. That's great. And then you moved into your current role? Yeah, yeah. There was a, a few steps between. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I got to a point at KPMG where I've been promoted a few times and my boss at the time leading our financial services stage and the 16th actually, uh, actually left KPMG. So I had just under a year actually running the, the team, so 35 person team, which is very interesting. So it was very actually nice. the kind of business operations side of things as well. So it's hiring and people management running the financials of a, effectively a, a small consulting business, uh, whilst managing also project work and vendor relationships and things like that. So really varied, but I've decided at this point in my career to do something else. So I went independent, became a contractor, and really tried to sort of sell my skills and uh, work directly with clients myself, which I had about 18 months doing that, which was really good. And then took on my current role at the Lawyers of London full-time. So here I'm now Head of Data Product Development, which is effectively crafting business intelligence, data products, reporting products, data visualizations, websites from the data we have to help us recognize value in that data. It's coming from a traditional home of business intelligence and data management really opening up the boundaries so anything is possible. That's great. I've got heaps of questions. But first, I guess, looking back, because you started as a business intelligence consultant with a heavy focus on data warehousing. I also cut my teeth in sort of large-scale projects doing data warehousing. And what do you think about the evolution of data warehousing that now we still have the traditional warehouse, we got data lakes, we've got uh, structured and unstructured data. What is your view in terms of how the technology has evolved and how businesses are making use of it? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Once you've got a bit of perspective in your career, you can kind of really see trends, ebbs and flows in technology. I mean, when I first started, the I guess the idea of the data warehouse, it wasn't, it wasn't new, but it was kind of really taking hold in some of the largest organizations in the world. So whether it's Inman or Kimball, the methodologies are really strong and some of these global petrochemical companies or banking companies are really trying to consolidate all their data. The sort of vision of having a single view of data was very strong and very sort of admirable. People really wanted to have the value that they provide. But the reality of that is then quite hard because people realise global distribution network or siloed countries have different ways of working, definitions for data, different levels of data quality, or even specific reporting requirements that 
varied by region. So the vision of having one size fits all is, is very good, but the reality can be quite costly, quite slow. So I think the balance is always the technical art of the possible and actually how much alignment you want in your business. And I think the different phases we've been through have helped get us closer to a better place. So you know, we kind of almost started with like EPM, I would say, like Enterprise Performance Management, where the, the technology enabler is effectively hypercubes or cubes, where a number of dimensions can be loaded into one place, financial planning or consolidation, to, to view a, a whole chunk of data at the same time. And because it was in memory, it could be fast and responsive. Data warehousing was then effectively a result of cheaper memory on disk and the ability to be able to store and, and, and organize larger volumes of data at a reasonable price. I think then you kind of got the cheaper in-memory and, and uh, more available processing power that enabled the likes of Tableau and Click, Spotfire and Power BI to effectively put in larger cubes of data at an end user level and use the server products on the server. So effectively you can cluster the in-memory of those and get far beyond what a traditional EPM tool could do. So you can talk to millions or billions of rows, hundreds of dimensions. So that kind of really unblocked the end user and the, and the art of the possible and the visualization side, which I think then kind of raced ahead, it almost raced ahead of the data warehouse technology that existed. So that large chunks of data, so data marks of data, could effectively be in quite agile front-end data visualization, but potentially with a bit less control than you'd have from data warehouse environments. So people started to question, you know, why do I need this data warehouse project? Or am I really getting the value from that? How about I just do these snazzy dashboards? But then also, if you just do that approach, then you quite quickly get master data management or reference data issues, data quality issues, etc. So they are complementary. And then I think the, the data warehouse movement has been, again, even cheaper storage virtualized in the cloud as a commodity, but then also with lots of other value-add tools on top. So the ability in the data lake to um, effectively tag and organize your data and curate it either through a sort of crowdsourced sort of method across your organization or there's different silos of ownership, but they appear to come as standards, um, or a sort of centralized model of control. It allows you to ingest vast volumes of data and kind of deal with it later. So Involves the level of semantics you need over it, involves the level of structuring and tagging and then sort of quality steps that you need to do. So it really focuses on getting value first and then organizing second. Because I think in today's world, we, we have a lot of choice with data. We're not starved by data. We have the whole data warehouse. We have external data. We have streams of data. There's, there's all sorts of data we can use to answer the business questions. So data isn't holding us back anymore. It's now how we actually organize and curate it in a sensible way to actually get some value out of it. So, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of organizations are now making inroads on the data lake space, and I think it's really opening the answer to possible in terms of external data, or on necessarily, say, big data, but larger data processing and, and using data science techniques over them when potentially you don't know the data set as well, so you're trying to categorize, classify data to look for signals um, rather than just classic reporting and, and pivoting over data we're already very familiar with. Yeah, so try it. And that's where it gets really exciting, getting into signals and alerts and obviously external data. Really, really good stuff. Tell me, through your career in warehousing and BI, do you have any favorite applications or case studies that are specific projects that you worked on that you were particularly passionate about or that stuck with you over time? 
Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had a range of experiences. So rather than jumping into the technology straight away, I mean, I took on some different projects that definitely taught me different things. I mean, um, in the UK, around the financial crisis, there were a lot of kind of ramifications for UK banks. It obviously started in, in the US. But uh, one of the things that happened in the UK was that the UK government effectively encouraged, forced, and coerced Lloyds Banking Group to buy Halifax short notice um, because of some of their mortgage book at Halifax. And both banks had a massive presence with UK customers and uh, they really sort of said shockwaves through the high street. But um, one of the projects I was involved with was effectively consolidating the data warehouses technology um, for the mortgages area between Lloyds Banking Group and Halifax. Now, from a technical perspective, this was hugely exciting and interesting because there were dozens of systems using pretty much every technology under the sun, geographically diverse, so that people were not in the same place, they were in different offices around the UK. And we approached the projects kind of typically like any technical project to do a similar thing. So we had our methods, we had kind of a defender principle where effectively through all the applications of the best of breed was picked and then we were effectively migrating one onto the other and going through it. And you know, our approach was solid, our method was solid, and our team was, was very good, kind of cherry-picked from across Europe. But what it really taught me was actually the human factor in a lot of the work that we do is, is so, so, so important. So in this example, the two organisations were effectively forced together. Even the ownership and the leadership of those organisations didn't really want to join necessarily. It was something they had to do. So that as a culture really kind of flowed down to the employees and um, there was a, a lot of resilience or resistance from the different teams where effectively for years they've been working and building their system and their analytics function or their warehouse or their reporting tool and you know they've dedicated their careers to that technology and building that capability and we effectively turn up and as other bank turns up to effectively turn it off migrate on to another one and obviously with that there's potential consolidation of jobs or roles and a lot of uncertainty so um, that was the first project I would say that I, I really had to deal with some significant people issues. I was there as a technologist to effectively build a warehouse and reporting tool but we really had to deal with first and foremost some of the, some of the human issues and effectively get get acceptance that we were there and our role and our skills and motivations, to be honest. So that was a very interesting project but from a very different perspective. How did you deal with some of the people issues? Of essentially, people not wanting to be a single team. How did you navigate through those challenges? We try to listen. If you don't listen to people, I think you can't really persuade someone that you're a good guy and your motivations are good. I mean, you also kind of have to take your turn and listen to where they're coming from and what they've got and just try to be transparent, try to be honest about what knowledge you bring, what the processes you're there to do, just try and be clear. I think people can pick up on integrity or they can also pick up on kind of concern or worry or suspicion. There's no magic bullet, but uh, a bit of empathy in situations like that where you actually have to realise what the situation is for the people on the ground, then you can make a bit of progress. But it, it was very challenging. There were strong personalities. A lot of people didn't want to back down. So um, we made progress. Yeah, that's great. And tell me, what are some of the things that you're thinking about right now, problems that you're engaged with or, or trying to solve? What is in your field of work at the moment? Yeah, so I work at a company called Lloyds of London at the moment. So that is effectively an insurance marketplace in London, but it covers global insurance. It's similar to the London Stock Exchange, where multiple companies 
companies come together to, to trade equities or bonds. In Lloyds of London, brokers bring clients' insurance needs to the market and works with a range of insurance companies to cover the insurance risks that they need. So um, it's typically done for more risky or customised or large value business. So, for example, if SpaceX wants to ensure a rocket launch, that rocket might go through different risks at different phases of preparation, takeoff, entry into orbit. Potentially a satellite might dock with a special space station. It might then orbit the world three times and then land in the sea or Coast of Mexico. So through that journey, there would be different types of risk. There would be different experts that we would have that would have models for different situations. And also the value of those assets would be very large. So potentially one insurance company would want to insure the whole asset. So again, you can split out chunks of exposure and work with a number of different insurance companies. So the dynamic is very interesting because the different insurance companies are competitors that compete with each other, but they also have to collaborate at the same time. Um, through the market. So Lloyds of London effectively operates that market. So we operate the people, the processes, the technology, the office premises where needed and for that market to operate. And my job as head of data product development is to basically take the data that Lloyds of London has in its entirety and effectively get value from it. So part of the value that Lloyds offers to the insurers in the market is the fact that they can write insurance across any jurisdiction in the world and we also handle all of their regulatory reporting for them. So one of the value items is to effectively handle the regulatory and tax reporting across all the global regions. That's a, a kind of big pain taken away and we do this in a standardised way so we have a lot of credibility with the different regulators throughout the world. So rather than receiving lots of different potentially inconsistent returns from the insurers we have it as a service and same with tax but then we also do a lot of value-add services as well so we support the market in terms of their business planning for the future year and one of the reasons for that is that the most funding provides a capital buffer so if an individual insurer would effectively go bust and not be able to pay their claims and not be able to honour their they commit this to their customer, lawyers will actually step in and pay those for them. So that's one of the benefits of insurers coming to market. So I'm coming to this market for high value or risk claim. And we help people with business plans, so what products they're writing where around the world, how profitable are they, how many claims do they have. So there's a lot of data around that. And then we're now looking at some more um, not advanced things, but more kind of ambitious things where we're looking at risk signals and external data feeds from around the world to effectively model and stream risk exposure as well. And this summer, we're launching a what we call a market insights portal, which my team are busy developing at the moment, which will be a place that all of the insurers in the market can securely log into through the web to see benchmarked dashboards of their performance versus their peers. So what portfolio of business do they have at Lloyd's and how does that portfolio mix differ to people, but also how are they performing either financially or through business metrics or through commitments to their customers, speed of paying claims, things like that. But we can also use that portal to surface up new opportunities. So whether it be new geographies that they can move their insurance directions into or new econometric segments or demographics or potentially new products. Cyber is a, is a massive new product for the market, lots of growth there. So it's really how do we think the market can better help uh, end customers.
So interesting, because you've been looking at it all from a risk and an insurance perspective. Who are your main customers that are using the data products? Well, we have a range of syndicates in the market. So syndicates are basically financial entities that provide insurance. So those are effectively the insurers by, by any other name in the market. There are more complicated models than that. We have kind of reinsurance, we have cover holders that act on behalf of others. But typically our, our kind of customer for that angle is the insurers. And we also have brokers in the market. So brokers are very important to, to have those client relationships around the world, have that local knowledge, really understand the needs of each customer individually, and then match those up to the insurers that best suit their needs. So that they're also a big stakeholder for our market to keep our market healthy and with lots of business. That's really interesting. So the data products you're creating is for, say, insurance companies and brokers to better understand the insurances that they're about to buy or so they can better understand the risks that they're taking with the products? So an insurer will, will have its specialisms. So from the very small model, some people are very knowledgeable about a certain area. So we have insurers from global multinationals to effectively a few people. And set up their own business. So, in a few people, example, it might be simpler. Say you're very knowledgeable about racehorses and you've been in the racehorse market for years and years and you start to offer insurance or horses during the race and you know it very well, you know the market very well, you know what it does, you know what prices it accepts, you know risk factors. So, you know that. But what you don't know is effectively how you operate compared to another similar person in that industry. So maybe in a different country or a larger size or a smaller size or with a different mix, so maybe they also do other types of insurance. So it's really just giving them that context in terms of the benchmarks. But then in terms of the business planning, that's all very customised to the individual. So it's really a service from lawyers to help them. In a car. Are they putting enough capital aside in the future year? Are they moving into too risky or we think are not profitable for the market generally so it might be a risk to capital. Man, that's really, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a range yeah, of things right? you do. I mean, what I was going to say, one of the things that's public that is a bit more understandable is the City Risk Index. So if you Google City Risk Index Lloyds or anybody does, uh, listeners, and it's effectively a website where we look at 279 of the top cities around the world and we look at what GDP that city has rather than the country. And then what we've done is profile all of the risks that that city is exposed to and to work out the likelihood of that thing happening, but then also the economic impact of that happening. So you can use this website to effectively understand if you've got business operations in different cities around the world, or your suppliers or your customers have operations in those cities, what risks might they be exposed to as a result of being there? And then we can also look at the resilience of those populations, because in some cases, certain events would disproportionately affect certain cities or communities because they don't have resilience either at the city level or the nation level to effectively bounce back, whereas other cities can kind of take risks and not be damaged by them. So that's something that we launched in May last year, and we had a tremendous amount of press coverage around that. We had about 10,000 hits in the first month from all over the world and covered in lots of and news publications. And there's lots of insightful research around that as well. So we have research area where you can look at expert opinion on geography. So that's kind of an example of something that we're doing outside of the market to try and help people really understand risk in a different way and try and engage with it because quite often if you 
talk about insurance, people, some people understand it, some people don't, some people see values, some people don't. But if you talk about risks, then that's kind of universally understandable, especially when you put in data visualization and some interactivity, a nice clean web interface, then you start to see how it relates to them. Yeah, and this analysis that you guys released, it's awesome. Looking at the different threats by city, the amount of risk for each of the different threats, like market crash, interstate conflict, floods, human, pan- human pandemics. Yeah, so is, some of them are clearly impressive. insurable. Yeah, some of them are clearly insurable and linked to insurance products. Other le- others less so. You can still look at resilience measures and, and pick different places that you're interested in, multi-select different cities, or even drilling to certain types of threats. I mean, the, the tool is deliberately designed so it's kind of bi-directional. So if you're an insurer or you're a broker and you offer flood insurance, well, you can actually just look at floods and then see all cities around the world and what they're potential appetite for flood insurance is even my value or um, we use colours to show the severity of that risk in that region so it's kind of how resilient would they be if that happens so, so the, the biggest value at risk from flood is New York but actually they're quite resilient um, whereas one of the ones further down number six Houston and um, the value is less but it's going to be way more damaging for the city it would be a bigger proportion of the GDP um, if they were to experience a flood event. So, yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at things. I think it allows you to navigate and explore the data as you can't do in static reports or kind of written summaries. Yeah, exactly. And even looking at how much improving resilience could save in different cities around the world, I think it's fantastic. Really interesting work. And to do this type of piece of analysis, what other teams do you interact with within the company and, and how do those interactions work? A good question. Yeah, thank you. I mean, um, my team are effectively the data modeling and data visualization kind of development team, but we're by no means experts in all of the insurance areas. We've got a lot of real ex- deep expertise in Lloyd's. So to build this one, we work with a number of people. We work with our um, innovation team, which do a lot of research and insight, written insight into new risks, so emerging risks around the world. We also work with Cambridge University. So um, they have a risk studies department and we worked in conjunction with their modeling team to, to build the methodology and build the risk models. But also we have capital modelers in Lloyd's, a whole range of modeling teams. So we really have to collaborate across the teams. One, to access the expertise to make this a kind of sound exercise, sound methodology, but also then to bounce ideas around. That, that was more the interesting part. We could do the method, we could do the data model, but what did we want to do with the visualizations and what were the what were the user journeys that we wanted to support? How did we want to craft that user interface? And I think often that's the area that people have least experience in because being able to you know, rapidly build a web mashup with a data visualization tool is, is not necessarily a tried and tested and an old capability. Um, if you ask what the report should look like, you know, people could probably tell you or what, what, what columns they want in their Excel table. Um, if you want to build a sort of web visualization and transitions and different user journeys, then um, a lot of people find that quite challenging. So we have a lot of iterations and we're continuing to iterate. Um, we're looking at real-time threat information rather than annual sort of modeled data, uh, new challenges and also new use cases, and new products that we can craft from the same data. 
Really great. And tell me, I'm really curious about your time as a self-employed or as a contractor, those 18 months that you had. And I want to ask about it in two different parts. One is, what were the skills that you had to develop during that time? Or what do you wish you knew before making that jump? I'll ask that one first. Well, I was showing you before making that jump. I mean, from my time at KPMG, I was quite well-versed in building and developing a team, being quite commercial, negotiating and landing contracts, delivering uh, delivering a deal, delivering contracts. So to some extent, I was fairly well-versed, fairly well-prepared. And I had some contacts through my network that I thought could potentially offer me work. I guess, what did I wish I knew? Um, I kind of left... KPMG thinking, actually, I'd quite like to build my own consulting company, not to the size and scale of KPMG, but we had developed training while I was there, delivered many successful projects, had really good feedback from some of the best clients in the world, and had a really strong network. So I thought, yeah, let's do this. Let's try and build something new. It's at a time in my life when I can do that. And I started to do that. So I built a website, built some methods, uh, extended my network, and did some events to network with a whole range of different people. But the hardest part about consulting, I would say, is not delivering the work or even having the standards or having the methods. It's actually building a team. So you can build a brand, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of investment to actually you know, build, a, build a wider team and actually build a company. So I, I landed a contract, a very successful contract, did very well. You know, the client was very happy, got kind of good revenue and, and got extended. But the hard thing is then balancing being a consultant with running a consulting company. So how do you take the time out and to develop others? How do you take the time out to learn deals for other people that effectively allow you to scale? So there's a real tipping point there that means that you effectively have to take a short-term loss to, to, to cover others' contracts and to grow things. And uh, I, mean, I frankly got offered a, a very good position in, in the job that I am now. So I actually sort of stepped back from that, deciding not to pursue that. It might be something that I do again in the future. But um, yeah, I guess it was just... Uh, a bit of a learning experience using the skills in a different way and uh, it's definitely possible. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because you were already well-versed in a lot of the things that people don't learn before starting a company necessarily. So you were already well-versed in the contract negotiations and uh, in the commercial or being commercial focused, having the commercial focus on uh, leading teams or getting value. That would have made it, and obviously uh, having, having a network, so that would have made it an, an easier transition, which is fantastic. And do you think that that time as being a contractor or self-employed, did it help you in your role now? Do you feel that that time gave you new skills, new perspectives, a preparation to be better prepared at what you're doing now? And if so, what would that be? Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I think when you work for a big consultancy, you're very focused on delivery. That's really drummed into you and high quality work, and methods, having a satisfied client, etc. But when you work for yourself, it's, it's really quite heightened to the extent that you are very aligned, I think, to the customer. And if the customer, for whatever reason, is unhappy in your contract to end, that's quite an extreme scenario for you. you know, it's really off or on, it's really binary. So, what it made me realize is that actually, if you're a good contractor or consultant and um, the client knows how to work with you, you can achieve tremendous things because basically independent people want to satisfy you. So you've just got to give them the right signals. You've got to be transparent. You've got to give them interesting work. And 
they will work hard to earn their money. So when I took on the full-time role here at Lloyd's, I've used a number of contractors over my time here. Not a large kind of variety, but I've tried to recruit really high-quality contractors and work collaboratively with them, not you know see them as, as distant people that I to treat me and keep keen. It's they're really part of the team and we achieve some tremendous things with some of the extra people that we've had with us for the time that we've been here. So quite often people see larger consultancies as, as a way to give away quite a kind of a large problem or a delivery that people don't necessarily want to take ownership of. But with independent contractors I think we can really integrate them into your team and really suck them in your culture and teach your team and different ways of working and different levels of knowledge. I mean, my team at that time were completely new, so I came in a couple of years ago and the team didn't exist. So we hired people in from different parts of the business, built a new team, built a new culture, had contractors that also joined us to to kind of boost our capability. We've been able to achieve tremendous things in a couple of years, and just a couple of weeks ago, we're given a global award by Click, the company that builds ClickView and ClickSense. Yeah. Out of their 40,000 global clients, they awarded us a Digital Transformation Award in 2019 wow. for what we've been able to achieve with their product in, in kind of the two years that our team's existed. So we basically had... Congrats, um, mate. Yeah, thanks very much. I'm like super That's proud. fantastic. My team is only really seven people. We have four kind of contractors, so we're not a big team. So we've effectively gone from not having ClickSense at all, having about 30, 40 regular users on ClickView, to having around 65% of the whole organization using ClickSense in the last year, delivered tons of business benefits and time savings. And we're doing this external portal now. So we've really ramped up our capability here, and I'm tremendously proud of the team that we've been able to do. That's an incredible achievement. Congrats, mate. That is extremely well done. And was there anything in particular that got you over the line in or helped you specifically in winning the award? We were nominated by Click because they, they were aware of the work that we were doing. So we were kind of suggested to apply if you like shortlisted. But from that point on it was then about impact. So what were we able to achieve with the software that we were using and the techniques that we were using. So we have a range of applications across lawyers from our finance department, putting all of our global transactions into into a dashboard to procurement, what are all the suppliers we use globally and can we consolidate that supplier picture to save more money? We have all of the global premium flow into the Lloyd's market into one dashboard as well. So all of the country managers can see the last 13 years, every transaction has gone through the market to see specifically what's happening in their geography, what trends do they see, who are the important stakeholders when brokers or insurers or cover holders and what business do they write. So when they meet those people, they can have higher value conversations. They already know their business, they know how it's trending, they know what issues they're facing. So we've had a tremendous amount of success with that. We've also worked with our risk department to look at the operational risks that the market faces. So what things could happen to disrupt or in the worst case stop the market and how can we monitor those risks in the market and what controls and contingencies we have in place. So we've only done a tremendous amount of work across the Lloyd's organisation, but also we're starting to change the culture. So we have a data literacy programme, which we've developed that got 13 learning modules that, that all staff members can bring on take, and we've had a really nice uptake on that. We've had to kind of do like a data personal trainer, data literacy thing, where we have a, a group of people that we're really trying to coach and be more data-driven and using data visualizations and they've done the job on a, on a 
daily basis. So we're really trying a whole range of techniques, and what we're starting to see really positive change, which is great. Phenomenal, right? Oh, extremely well done. I'm really curious to ask you about common pitfalls that you see or common mistakes that people make or would make in developing data products. Do you have any specific sort of, I don't know, pet hates when it comes to the way that it might trip people up as they're developing data products? Uh, yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of things there. I mean, I think... First off, people don't necessarily understand what a data product is. So they don't have a product mindset. So a product is something that is... So think of any product, a you know, sports shoe. It's a thing that is made for a certain type of audience to specifically do a certain exercise better. So you have to know the customer. You have to know the target market so that you design it right, whether it's the style or the function. And then you have to know what they want to do with it so that you can enable them to do that thing better. Whereas I think, especially with data, people tend to just design something without really thinking about the process or the person. So a big bit of advice would be to do that thinking and craft a product for a certain user, user community. And it could be just a normal dashboard that you're producing for a department. Work out who your users are. Are they the operational analysts that are doing that job on a daily basis? Is it the team manager that's got different concerns or, or interests or potentially wants a higher level of aggregation? Or is it his boss who actually just wants the scorecard which shows him his track or not and only show me the bad things because the good things I actually don't act on? So really know your customer, know what they're doing with the data, because quite often reports don't actually help you do the actual. I mean, we've had some examples recently where we actually look at the building data we've got and um, who's going in what floor, when, how peaks and troughs and usage of the building is going up or down. And one of the aspects of that is meeting rooms. So we've worked with our, our building team to effectively look at who's booking rooms and not utilising. So that's a cost to, to the organisation that, that could be better, better realised. So we built the report, we put all the dashboards, that's all easy. What we then built was effectively a button to help them to email that person quickly and attach all of the information with a summary of the cost that that um, failure in turning up for their booking was, was incurring on the business. And that is the actual action. The action is to try and make it better. It's not just to get the message or the stop. So that final piece of integration with the email platform, putting the key bits of data in there and the cost that they incur to the organisation really drives the action. And then that's where you see the benefit because the point of the dashboard is not to build views, it's to actually to change the outcome. And when you go that step further to change the outcome, that's what makes a product for me. So it's not necessarily charging money for it. It could be reducing costs. It could be improving decision-making or changing an outcome. But it could also be revenue generating. So there's different ways of looking at a product. That is awesome. And I saw that you also have won a couple of global hackathons. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about those? Of course, yeah, sure. So I've been to the, the Global Click Conference a few times, and at that they do offer these, these hackathons. So effectively a short short time period, unseen data set on an unseen challenge. Um, and then as a team, you have to work together very rapidly to try and effectively build a data product from, from that to try and answer set questions. And it's something that we did a lot with KPMG because, one, it's fun. 
like it's really fun to use the skills that you have on a daily, weekly basis. Usually working over much longer time frames, but to work in a really intense way as a team in a short time period to try and achieve something. So it's a phenomenal way of, of building team spirit and, and kind of challenging yourself under pressure. Yeah, we were quite successful a, a few times. Uh, I attended twice with KPMG and one, the team I was a part of one. And uh, the second time, the team I was a part of came second, and the other team from KPMG won. So we were still super proud for our, our colleagues. And then uh, last year, I attended again with Lloyd's and uh, won that hackathon again with one of my team here, which was great because he'd only been using the ClipTense products for a year. And there was only two of us in the team, usually it was like four or five. So yeah, we were completely buzzing. It's a great way to uh, test your skills against lots of other fantastic developers. And, yeah, try and focus on the outcome. That's a real nice way of testing. Are you producing a quality product? Because someone's got to judge it. So that was quite nice. That's fantastic. So is that something that you recommend people doing? Definitely, yeah, definitely. It's a really nice way of making yourself force and deli- force yourself to deliver value within a very short time frame. So yeah, I definitely recommend that. Get involved if you see any around and uh, network with your peers, pick up tips and tricks. That's fantastic. And tell me, what excites you the most about this field? Why do you love it? I see some really exciting things at the moment. I think that the two big things for me are being able to take data products outside of your organization. So, and this is kind of a boring trigger, but the trigger is effectively licensing models for traditional business intelligence vendors are starting to open up a little bit. So, um, people are, are starting to embed their data products into websites like we have with the City Risk Index or portals like we do in the Market Insights portal we launched in the summer. And but other other organizations are doing it as well. They're embedding it into their platform. So even things like a supermarket or eBay, you know, they've got sliders and they might have some context benchmarks. Data is becoming part of the user experience, which is fantastic for me. So I think that crafts so many more value add opportunities, you know, we can give benchmarks or context at the point of use. Um, I think that's fantastic because data then becomes part of the business process, not just an afterthought for managers. So I think that's fantastic. Another thing that I think is fantastic is AI and machine learning because this allows new types of questions to be answered. So it's kind of the known unknowns, I guess. It's, it's, I know there's something there, but I'm not quite sure what the correlation or pattern or decision tree is. And having, I think it's tools that enable wider people, wider groups of people, whether it's business intelligence developers or data analysts or even business users to tap into the power of machine learning and AI and will be mm. phenomenal. I've started to see inroads from a number of vendors, Power BI, ClickSense has, has put some really nice suggestive, either suggestive for us, so you haven't created this graph in your application, but we've seen a correlation that suggests you might want to look at this to actually drive an analysis. So when you look at this metric, sales by region, did you know that the biggest influencing factor of sales is gender or weather or gender and weather equals 40% driver? You know, effectively start to do the decision tree analysis for you, but playing it yes. back to the user very much in plain English that doesn't require a statistics PhD or something Python development to actually get some value out of it. So I think that's in really its infancy at the moment. I think it's going to accelerate really fast and, and really change the, the, the working jobs of a lot of people. You know, it's going to be fantastic. Are you seeing those sorts that's of trends right. where you are? Yeah, definitely. I've been um, very excited about merging 
BI with machine learning and AI. I think, as you said, like being able to not only have the chart from a BI perspective, but to be able to have predictions, forecasts, you mentioned the, the drivers to highlight anomalies, to be able to generate text around the explanations of what's happening in a particular chart, all that having all those components powered by AI, I think it's going to make it for a lot more digestible, easy to understand business intelligence. And obviously, then if you can overlay that with something like a chatbot or natural language understanding where somebody can have, be having almost a conversation with the system and the system being able to show them charts and information about what's happening in the organization or in the marketplace around their area of interest and having that in a very user-friendly conversational style. I personally think it'll be sort of the, it'll revolutionize the market and something that I'd be really excited to see come to life. What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think natural language interface is, is definitely the next step. I mean, you see it in a lot of custom service where people ask their questions and see chatbot, but that's very quickly become kind of normal and it's added another channel to that service level. So why data shouldn't act in exactly the same way is just a question of organizing the data so that the metadata can be read and then you can have the right books and semantics for the chatbot to work with. So I mean that's actually something we've been trying in the last month or so here we feel like we use a lot of consent and we have these things called master dimensions to measures whereby you get a really nice plain text understanding of something. But previously you'd only been able to achieve a chatbot over a certain single app or single business area. We've effectively trying to match that together across all areas to allow chatbot type experience over all of the key KPIs that we've got, so say key KPIs, but maybe 200 KPIs across the organization, but allowing a simplified experience to, to access that. And we're still in the early days, we're sort of trying that capability, but I think removing barriers to data literacy, so you can't answer this question because you don't know where to click or you don't know what it means or it's too many graphs to freak out, you know, anything we can do to just ease that path to knowledge it's fantastic. I think chatbots could be very useful if you can get a good experience from them. I love that. Uh, removing barriers to data literacy, I think that is a very well-worded and, and fantastic pursuit. Definitely what we need right now. Tell me, from your perspective, what are you most proud of that you've done in your career with everything that you've done? What's the standout for you? I think there's two things that spring to mind that do make me proud. Uh, when I was at KPMG, we built a kind of a small business, if you like, a small business in terms of consultancy within the consultancy firm. And, and as part of that, we found it hard to scale. So we hired in skilled people, but to scale truly was, was hard. So we realized we had to tap into the graduate population. So we basically built a, a three-day immersive training experience where we take the whole graduate community for technology grads, put them through a project, a business intelligence project, and train them in the aspects from hardware to software to data warehousing to reporting and building dashboards and tuning architecture and um, changing data models and basically did it all in a in a three-day period and we kind of took it from a small little test to a slightly larger group and by the end we had around I think it was around 110 people on the final one when I was there going through that process so over the kind of five-year period I think we trained over 450 people and kind of gave them a really solid grounding in business intelligence and data management, data quality architecture. 
that. So I think being able to kind of work together as a team that we were then to cover the different disciplines and get a training course in place and put all of those factors through. I was tremendously proud of that. I think we didn't necessarily get a lot of kind of credit in the workplace where we were necessarily, but the impact was huge. Suddenly, we had this old army of graduates all across the business that understood what we did and the value in it, and I'm sure that helped out them in their careers. So I was very proud of that, and the team that I was working in to achieve that. I think the other thing more recently is the award from Click that I mentioned earlier. That's the first sort of time that I think my team has achieved a, a professional award, and um, not existing two and a half years ago in the team, and being able to sort of kick yeah. on and achieve what we've achieved and get credibility and deliver real things, deliver new platforms, deliver nearly 50 business applications and you know, build a, a market insights portal on a city risk index website. We've achieved fantastic things. So that's partially down to me, but it's mostly down to the team that I've had and, and the culture that we've been able to put in the that real can-do attitude. So that's definitely something that I'm tremendously proud of. Yeah, definitely, mate. Both extremely impressive achievements. On one side, as you say, training up all those people, it definitely would send them on a different trajectory for their career, having those skills, having that appreciation, that data literacy, and also being able to provide that value in any teams that they're part of all across the business and obviously into their, their careers later on. I think that that is a fantastic initiative that you created and ran there. And then the second one, having such a prestigious award achieving that within two years after starting the team it's record time so very very well done mate yeah really really impressive man this has been an an absolute blast i only have one last question for you and that is what would be a a takeaway that you'd like to leave the listeners with something for them to think about during their career that can help them make decisions or something to focus on what's something that you would like to leave them with yeah i mean one thing that i've always found regardless of the technology I'm working on or, or, or the team that I'm in or the situation I'm in is really start with listening. If you start to sell a technology or you think you've already got the answer or you assume what people need, more often than not you're, you're either going to produce the wrong thing or, or you're going to actually miss the real opportunity. So yeah, definitely start with listening, definitely trying to understand people's jobs and what they do and what their real pain points are because if you can really recognize that and then deliver to it. It might not even be a complex solution, but if you deliver value early and quickly, you can move on to greater and bolder things, but definitely start with listening. That is awesome. A fantastic note to end on. Nick, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your journey, your wisdom, your insights. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Thank you. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. 
also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.